Father, thank you for another day that you've given us. We thank you for so many things, Lord, too many to count. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for preparing a place for us in heaven, Lord. Help us to set our minds on you today, to look to you, to be encouraged by you and built up in your word. Pray that you would unify us as a church. Help us, Lord, to look after one another, to consider others more important than ourselves, as your word says. Help us to use our gifts to serve you. We thank you, Lord, for those who have helped set up today, those in children's church, all that have made this possible, Lord. Please bless us right now as we get into your word together. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Encourage us. Lift us up, Lord, and help us, Lord, to get our minds off of the things of this world and onto you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to share a teaching today that I pretty much wrote for myself, and now I'm going to share it with you. Sometimes I do that. Almost every time I give a teaching, it's for myself, and then I share it with the rest of you. And so today the title is simple, Do Not Fear. Do Not Fear. It's one of the most repeated commands in the Bible over a hundred times God reminds his children to not fear. And I wanted to know exactly how many times it's stated in the scripture. And I did some digging on the internet. I stumbled upon a wall decal sticker on Amazon of all places that states this quote, the phrase do not be afraid is written in the Bible 365 times. That's a daily reminder from God to live every day being fearless. I thought that's pretty cool. 365 times. But then I looked at the comments underneath and somebody gave it a one-star review and they put this quote, this is a false teaching. The phrase do not fear varying in forms is in the Bible approximately 145 times, depending on your take on the statement. While the phrase is full of hope, making up Bible facts is not. So they weren't too happy about that, that they put 365 days, 365 times that God repeats this command. They said it's closer to 145 times. And I did some digging and then finally just said, you know what? I don't have enough time to get the exact number. It's somewhere between 100 and 200 times in the scripture that God tells his children and even his children tell other children of God, do not fear like Joshua tells the children of God, do not fear, do not fear. And so you see this phrase, do not be afraid, do not fear all throughout the scripture. And we need this reminder in our lives today. God wants us to be at peace. He wants us to be at rest in his love. He wants us to know that he is with us. And that's why we shouldn't fear. We shouldn't fear anything. We shouldn't fear anyone. The first time we see this phrase in scripture from God to man is Genesis 15, 1. That's where God tells Abram, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Then God appears to Isaac. And in Genesis, Genesis 26, 24, states, I am the Lord, God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Then he appears in Genesis 46.3 to Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Then he appears to Moses, Numbers 21.34. 
But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, I'm a shield to you. I'm with you. I will make you a great nation. I've given the king into your hand. You get to the book of Joshua, Joshua 8.1, Joshua 10.8, Joshua 11.6. God pleads with Joshua, do not fear. I have given them into your hands. I will deliver the slain before Israel. God is pleading with his children. He's pleading with us. Trust me. I'm good. I'm for you. I'm with you. Trust in yourself and you will live in fear. Or you can trust in me and you can be fearless. You can be courageous. You can live a bold life unto the Lord. I read an article from Glamour.com titled, It's Not Just You, Lots of Adults Are Afraid of the Dark. The article states, Quote, according to clinical psychologist John Mayer, PhD author of Family Fit, Find Your Balance in Life, it states fear of the dark is very common among adults. It goes on to state that more adults are afraid of the dark than they are of the afraid of heights. About one out of every 10 adults or so is afraid of the dark. Is it possible that this time of year when and not only this time of year, but particularly this time of year when people are glamorizing death and darkness and dressing up like goblins and witches and ghosts, that perhaps this is a facade for a deep-seated fear within that many people have and so that they can laugh about it and go out and trick-or-treat and almost celebrate these things. But behind closed doors, many people are living in fear. Another article, econolight.com, is America afraid of the dark? States, we conducted a survey of over 2,000 people from across the country to find out if people are afraid of the dark as adults and what, does, and what about it makes them so uneasy. Surprisingly, according to their study, 50% of respondents report that yes, they are afraid of the dark as adults. 50% of adults state they're afraid of the dark. Now, God doesn't want his children living in fear. And maybe it's not the dark. Maybe you don't sleep with a nightlight. Maybe you do. But there's many things in this world that can cause fear in our hearts. And that's why God repeats it so often in scripture. But he doesn't want us to be afraid of these things. Not of death, not of the future, not on the uncertainty of finances or people or anything you can think of. God does not want you or I to live in fear. Because when we live in fear, we're saying, I'm not sure that I trust you, Lord. I'm not sure that you're in control. I'm not sure that you love me. And so fear is a lack of faith. It's an attack on our faith in the Lord. And so as we seek him, as we see and savor him, as I talked about last week, as we grow in our love for God, then the fear will be driven out. And where do we find this in scripture? 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The Greek word for perfect is teleos. It means complete, mature, full-grown Full-grown, mature love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And the context there is judgment. 
And he's saying you shouldn't fear condemnation. You shouldn't fear the day of judgment because when you're in Christ, when you are loving him with a perfect, full-grown love, when you're maturing and growing in love, it's going to cast out any fear of that and any fear of anything else in our lives. So fear in our lives is also a sign that we're not resting in the Father's love for us and we're not loving him the way we should because perfect love casts out all fear. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 8, I want to read this glorious text from verses 28 through 39. But if you'll do a little pit stop in verse 15 with me, I want to share a little bit of context. Some have called this the greatest chapter in the Bible, with verse 1 being the greatest verse. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 2 through 14, he talks about this battle that we're all in, the flesh and the spirit, both waging war with one another. And then he says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verses 13 and 14. And then you get to Romans 8, 15, and it says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a term of tender endearment by a beloved child. It's saying Father. Some Greek lexicons say Daddy. We don't, I don't really know if that's a great translation or not. But it's this term of endearment to where you're like, I love you so much, Father. So he says, Father. Father, twice there in verse 15. We're not under the old covenant. We're not to be slaves of sin. We're not to live according to the flesh. We're not to live in fear, Paul is stating. And he repeats this slavery in verses 15 and 21. And then he talks about suffering in verses 17, 18, and 22. He talks about weakness in verse 26. He talks about groaning and travailing, how the all of creation is in groaning and travailing in verse 22, how we are groaning, verse 23. And then in verse 26, how the spirit travails or groans for us. We do not know how to pray as we should in our weakness, but the Holy Spirit groans for us, it says, in the midst of our weakness, too deep for words. And so we pick it up now in the midst of this context of suffering and groaning and weakness in verse 28 through 39, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and whom he predestined these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a beautiful passage. It's a powerful passage. It's about God's love for us. Paul throws out these rhetorical questions after making and stating these promises over and over again. And the Bible says that we love God because he first loved us. The point I bring us to this passage is if we can grasp this passage, if we can understand God's love for us, then we should love him in return and perfect love casts out all fear. And I stumbled upon this passage and I couldn't leave it during my study yesterday because there's so many places we can go when we talk about fear all throughout the Psalms, many places in the New Testament where Jesus talks to his disciples and tells them, do not fear. But I wanted to take a look at this passage and a little bit of a different angle looking at this wonderful passage and give you seven reasons why we should not fear from Romans 8. Now, I wanted to find eight because that would sound better, I think. Eight reasons from Romans 8 that we should not fear. And after I looked at it this morning, I thought maybe I could twist a couple things and turn a couple things, but it was too late. So, seven reasons why we should not fear from Romans chapter 8. Number one, we should not fear because God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Some of you might have that on the wall in your house. Some of you, that could be your favorite verse. Some of you have heard that verse for many years. But don't ever let these verses that we've known since maybe even when we were little lose their power. Underline the words, all things. Not some things, all things. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, he's causing it to work for your good and for his glory. Now, we don't know why sometimes. We don't know how. We're not sure exactly why certain things are happening. But for those of us who love God, we have this promise and we should know it. As Paul says, we know that he's causing all things to work for the good. Point number two. Some of these I'll spend longer on. Some of them, not so much time. Number two, verses 29 through 31. We should not fear because God is for us. Very simply, God is for us. And he gives this list in verses 29 through 31. You've been foreknown. You've been predestined. You've been called. You've been justified. He even says you've been glorified as if it's already happened. You've been glorified. Some call this the golden chain of redemption. See, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Therefore, you can't break this chain. So if he's predestined you, you will be saved. You can't get out of it. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't sin your way out of it. You can go murder a thousand people and you're still going to be saved. You can just go live like the devil. Is that what the passage is saying? No, but some will try to say that about this passage and even the end of Romans chapter eight. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? See, nothing can separate us. We can live however we want. And of course, that's not what we're saying today. Even if you keep reading to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Paul says you must continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. 
Wesley says of this passage in verses 29 through 31, John Wesley says, Paul does not deny that a believer may fall away and be cut off between his special calling and his glorification. He's just listing a step-by-step of those who finally persevere in the faith, those who endure in the faith. This is a step-by-step of what God is doing in the believer. And it's a precious promise for us who endure, for those of us who persevere, those of us who suffer, as it says in Romans 8, 17. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. But some people, when suffering comes, like happened in the first three centuries, when there was persecution in the church, the suffering came and many denied the faith. And it was a big deal in the early church because they wanted to then come back into the church once the suffering had passed over. Once Christianity was no more persecuted at the same level it was, these people that denied the Lord said, oh, we want to come back in the faith. We want to be part of the church. And the Christians that were part of that church that had been persecuted, thrown in jail, and lost their loved ones said, we don't know. You're not coming back to church. You denied the Lord. When times got tough, you deserted him. And so it was this big deal in the early Christian church. Do we allow them back in? Because now they're professing faith again and they want to come back. And some were saying, no, you've denied the Lord. You're gone. And so it's a heavy passage, but it's an encouragement for us today that if we are trusting in the Lord, God is for us. And that's why Paul says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? He's going to build an argument and then he's going to throw out these questions like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Is anyone against us as Christians? There are people against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? He just spent several chapters talking about the flesh and the spirit and how to not give in to the flesh and how to resist the flesh by living in, according to the spirit and put, putting the flesh to death. So he's not saying nobody's against us, but he's saying compared to who this amazing, all-powerful God is and what he's doing in your life, who's against us? Like, really? Is anyone against us? It's like an ant fighting a lion. Silly illustration, but I thought of it last night. Doesn't stand a chance. And he's saying, who's against us? Really, flesh? Really, world? Really, world flesh? Devil? You're going to throw some flaming missiles at us? We have our God who is this great, amazing, powerful being. And if he's for us, you don't stand a chance against us. Wonderful, amazing passage of the almighty, all-powerful, all-majestic, and all-loving Father, creator of the universe, who is working in and through us, who is sanctifying us, who is sanctifying us to be more like Jesus, as it says in verse 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 23.4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We need to have these verses on our minds, in our hearts, meditating on them day and night so that we do not live in fear. Point number three, we should not fear because God freely gave us Jesus to show us how much he loves us. And in him, we freely have all things. Verse 32, Romans 8, 32. 
he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Just in case you were doubting point number two, just in case you weren't convinced that God is for you, Paul is going to continue to build an argument here in Romans 8. He's going to build and build argument upon argument, and it's a beautiful thing. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrated his love. Did God have to send Jesus? I asked this to my wonderful bride last night. She said I could share. I have to get approval before I share anything about her with you guys. Okay. We had a good conversation last night. And sometimes I quiz her on theological questions just to see where she stands and if she knows and I'm consulting commentaries and looking at different things and then I'll ask her and she'll get the right answer most of the time. Even to the point where I'm like, were you like watching me look up the answer to this? Because you seem like you got it pretty quickly. So she'll be happy I shared that. So, but I asked her, did God have to send Jesus? Could God still be all loving and not send Jesus to die for our sins? Could God send us all to hell? Because the scripture says God is love, right? God is love. And some of us just think, okay, well, if God is love, then surely he would send his son. Surely he would save us. And really, God could still be all loving and not send his son. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, implying he could have spared his son. He could have held on to his son. Jesus didn't have to leave heaven for us. We could all be doomed, headed for hell, and God would still be righteous, pure, and all loving. Why? Because God is holy. God is also a just God. And we are rebels. He's the king of kings. He's the king and we've rebelled against the king. We've put his name through the mud. We're tyrants in the land. We're his enemy. And what do kings do to their enemies typically? Do they send their precious, beloved, only son to be sent out into the mob and to die for the thugs and for the criminals and for the tyrants so that they can now go into the castle and reign with the king? Let that set in for a minute. That's his amazing love for us. The king could have wiped us all out and still been glorious and awesome and holy and loving. And instead he set, sent his precious son to die for us so that the rebels could rule and reign with the king. And not only that, he freely gives us the kingdom. He gives us everything. Let that wonderful, stupefying fact settle in your hearts this morning as to how much God loves you and I. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 22 puts it this way. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Luke 12, 32, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, do not fear, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We just can't fully comprehend how much the Lord loves us and what he's done for us. But if we could just grasp a little bit of it, wow, what would that do in our lives and what would that do to the fear 
that any of us are holding on to. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. He says, behold. He says, see, comprehend, understand, know this love. Point number four. We should not live in fear because the one who conquered death is for you. Verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Once again, is no one bringing a charge our way? Is that what he's saying? Who's going to bring a charge? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's just like overpowering the opposition with these arguments. He's blowing it away. He's saying, who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who is against us in light of all these amazing promises? In verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8, it says that the Holy Spirit is for us. He's interceding for us. Verse 31, God is for us. And here in verse 34, the resurrected Christ is for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, pleading for us. You have the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all 100% for you if you're trusting in the Lord, if you're saved. So who can say guilty? Who can bring an accusation against you? Who can condemn you? Well, Satan can try, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. He's going to God, just like in the book of Job where God is going back from the earth to God's presence. Look at Job. Look at this person. Look at that person. And he's accusing people. He's accusing you. He's accusing me. And then Christ steps forward. And he reminds Satan and he tells him, remember to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished. He shows him his nail-scarred hands. And then Satan goes running, trembling, remembering that we're cleansed that we're justified, that we are glorified, as it says in verse 30. Anytime Satan brings an accusation or any of his minions or anyone else, Jesus is there to stand in our place and say, paid in full, forgiven. Sends the enemy or the enemies running and should send us running to him in thankfulness, in awe, in love for him and saying, we fear you, Jesus, and nobody else. Point number five. We should not fear because no one, nobody, no person, nothing can separate you from his amazing love. It's a beautiful promise. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he gives this list. Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecution? Shall famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Can any of these things separate you from the love of Christ? Paul wants you to know that when you're going through these things, Jesus loves you just as much as he did the day he saved you. And that none of these things can separate you from his love. And Paul's speaking from experience here. He's pretty much listing his life. Tribulation, check. Distress, check. Persecution, check. Famine, check. Nakedness, check. He's been through it all. And it's a reminder for himself, I'm sure, and a reminder for us that no matter what we go through, Christ still 
loves you and I. He's saying Christ's love overrules tribulation. Christ's love overrules distress. Christ's love overrules persecution or famine or nakedness, peril, sword, or even death. Or fill in the blank with whatever is causing fear in your life or whatever is causing you or I to doubt that God loves us in Christ. We should be overwhelmed and amazed by this love that Christ has for us. And when we do, when we are, it will cast out all fear. Point number six, verse 37. We should not fear because we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Greek word, hupernikao, overwhelmingly conquer. If you have an ESV, an NIV, or a King James, it says we are more than conquerors. Those five words are one Greek word. If you have an NASB like me, we overwhelmingly conquer. One Greek word, hooper nikao. He could have just said nikao. Nikao means victory. It means to conquer. It's where we get the awesome name Nick. I'm thankful my mom named me Nick. I didn't know what it meant for years until I started studying the Bible. And I go, oh, Nick means victorious one or conquer. Nikao. He could have just said, we are Nikao. We are conquerors. He says, no, no. We overwhelmingly conquer. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. We beyond conquer. We more than conquer. We exceedingly conquer. Through Christ and his love, no matter what life brings our way. It's an emphatic expression with strong force to proclaim Christ's love for us. And you know what I love about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat things. It tells us how it is. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. God's real with us. He knows we're going to have rough days. He knows we live in a sinful, fallen world. Sometimes we forget that. Deep down inside and in our flesh, we want to live comfortably. We want to live at peace with the world. We want to just be at peace, so to speak. But we're in a war zone. The enemy's alive and well. Our flesh is alive and well. The world is alive and well. And we're in this sinful fallen nature and in this sinful fallen world. And with that comes trials. With that comes tribulation. But with that, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Revelation 2.11 says the overcomer, Nikao, the one who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.26, the one who overcomes will have authority over the nations. Revelation 3.5, the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and will not be blotted from the book of life and Christ will confess his name before the Father and the angels. Revelation 3.12, the one who overcomes will be made a pillar in the temple of God and God's name will be written upon him. Revelation 3.21, the one who overcomes will sit with Jesus on his throne. I often wondered, how, do, how are we overcoming? How are we overwhelmingly conquering in the midst of death in this list? And I believe that Revelation breaks that down for us. 
that will be ruling and reigning for us, that he's preparing a place for us, that God uses these things to strengthen our faith and our love for him. And so that's how we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ, because Jesus overwhelmingly conquered Satan and death on the cross so that when we follow in his footsteps, we conquer as well. So I love the scripture because it gives us hope. It gives us a future. It gives us answers in the midst of the difficulties of life. And it gives us this inexpressible, unfathomable, incomprehensible love that should take our breath away. Sometimes I have to get the thesaurus out and I just have to look for more and more words to try to describe this love that God gives us in Christ. One man said that Cicero never wrote anything that comprehends to the eloquency here of Romans 8. Because some look at Cicero as this man who spoke very eloquently in the, I think it was the first century. And when many have read Romans 8, they were amazed at how Paul breaks this down. I love the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Should Die For Me. Amazing Love, I Know It's True. It's My Joy to Honor You in all I do to honor you. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. We shouldn't ever take it for granted. Yes, we live in America. Yes, we have many things handed to us. Yes, we have a lot. So some of us can just think, yeah, he should have died for me. I deserve it. And we take it for granted. And it's a shame. We should be in awe and thankful, realizing that Christ did not have to come. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him us up for us all. So, two more verses. Revelation twelve eleven. They triumphed, Nikao, over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. And then John 16:33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you will have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, be of good cheer. I have nikao. I have overcome the world. Here's my last point for today. Point number 7, verses 38-39. Do not fear. We should not live in fear. We should be convinced. We should be confident. We should trust immensely that God loves us. It's a plea. Paul says in verse 38, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Greek word is pitho. It's from pistis. Pistis in the New Testament means faith. Pitho means assurance, to be sure of something, to be convinced. Paul says, I am sure. I am convinced that none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We need to be assured of our salvation. And we need to be assured that if we've built our lives on the rock of Christ, when the rain descends, as it says in Matthew chapter 6, though the floods come, though the winds blow and burst against the house, 
and burst against you in your life, you can stand strong and know and be confident and boldly proclaim that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves me. And know that all things work together for the good. And know that God is for me. And know that all things have been given to me in Christ And know that I'm justified and forgiven and saved. And know that the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit, as I'm speaking right now, are interceding for us. We need to have that mindset. That the Lord, even as we're talking, is ruling and reigning. And that he is in control. My sixth point was we overwhelmingly conquered through him. And that nobody, no person, no angel... No principality, nothing now, nothing in the future can separate us from this inexpressible, indescribable, amazing love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as I was in my study, this text, as I mentioned, just gripped me. I couldn't turn the page. I was here for several hours almost weeping at one point as I was just reading this passage over and over again bathing, so to speak, in the love of Christ. And do you know how much fear I felt in that moment? None. It was like, okay, bring it on. Whatever the world has, I'm ready. Because I understand, I know, I'm convinced that God loves me. I'm ready to go be with him. And that's what I want for you guys. I want you to know the love of Christ. I want you to rest in this love. And whatever fears may come your way, whatever Satan may tempt you with, I want you to be able to cling to passages like this and never doubt the love of God. So may we say, like the psalmist, as I close, in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, God is our refuge and our strength, a very ready help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth shakes, and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, we will not fear. We will not fear because we have overwhelmingly conquered through Christ who loves us. May we be able to say that today, now, and forevermore. Amen.